Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we check in with Institutional Portfolio Manager Ilan Colette as he gives us his thoughts on the last Bank of Canada rate announcement of 2023 and what he sees in store for the new year. The BOC kept its policy rate unchanged at 5%, but it also warned that rate hikes aren't off the table in 2024. Elon says the expectation for next year is that discretionary consumer spending will continue to pull back as many Canadians want to ensure the principal mortgage gets paid. The more pullback you see could signal an upcoming recession. The U.S. is experiencing a different story as the labor market remains tight and inflation slows down. Plus, the mortgage structure in the U.S. is very different compared to Canada. Elon says the global asset allocation team remains underweight Canadian equities. He adds, with serious macroeconomic headwinds, he believes Canada will lag. The team is overweight U.S. equities and underweight the Canadian dollar and overweight the U.S. dollar, hoping this will be a shock absorber for the fund. This podcast was recorded on December 12th, 2023. Joining me here this morning to discuss inflation, his outlook for the U.S. and Canadian economies over the next several months is Institutional Portfolio Manager Elon Collette. Welcome. Thanks very much. Great to see you. It's a real pleasure to have you here because we know that at the FOMC, everyone is sitting around the table now. The announcement is tomorrow. We kind of think it will be a hold. But um, what do you think? Tell us tell us about a recent trip of yours. And I know you were in D.C. for different kinds of meetings. But what did you get a sense that the collective soft landing narrative is is making progress or not? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a great place for us to start. So I mean, the numbers we got this morning on CPI did indicate, right, another month of sort of slowing or progress on inflation. And I think what we're observing right now in the U.S., specifically in the U.S., is uh, perhaps that soft landing. Um, you know, I, again, I never would have expected with 525 basis points of tightening by the Federal Reserve, we would achieve a soft landing. Highly unprecedented, but inflation is moving in the right direction. The job market has the unemployment rate rather has trended slightly higher, um, but still remains at you know near hyster- historic lows. Growth remains intact, and again, in some of these conversations um, that I had last week, I would say you know if neutral is in the twos and we're sitting at call it the fives, rates likely don't need to be as restrictive as they are in the U.S. Uh, and you know perhaps we can expect some some pretty serious or significant easing um, uh, next year. Okay, well, let's go to the cuts question, the easing. Um, I mean, they could do something along the lines of of the tightening story in terms of quantitative tightening, um, I don't know, increasing or or having being less so. What what do you think of sort of the accommodative path of things? Is it only cuts? Is that the most effective way of doing it? Well, so, I mean, again, I think the way we should think about this is really in the framework of the data that they're digesting in trying to think about the progress that they've achieved on the on the economy. I mean, so I think the way to think about it, and again, this is this is perhaps a, an overly easy or simplistic way to view things, but it's one of I think it's an instructional tool that that we can that we can use to help think about you know the path of rates specifically with the Federal Reserve. And so I would describe the U rate as a check mark, the core PCE deflator, so that's inflation, as almost a check mark, 
And then the Fed funds rate, again, still remaining at that highly restrictive uh, level. Um, and so, you know, if I'm sitting around the table um, and I'm one of the members of the FOMC, which I'm not, I would, I would, you know, start to indicate that we have made serious progress on inflation. Unemployment remains uh, near historic lows and is trending higher. Wage growth is slowing. We're seeing really significant improvement. Do we need to be as restrictive going forward as we were when we were trying to conquer inflation? And I think the answer to that is no. Um, and I, I, I would think in the new year, they'll begin to signal that rates will not be as restrictive going forward. But not tomorrow. But not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. So you're the perfect person to ask, and you can you can dodge it. But uh, the dots. So you're saying starting to indicate. <laughs> that's usually via the dots. Tell us what the dots may show us tomorrow. Yeah, so the dots are an interesting one. Um, I don't think the Federal Reserve had any intention to make the dots as prominent um, as they've become, right? So there's actually a Bloomberg function on the terminal there now is. called Dots Go, right, where you can pull up all the dots and all of the historical dots. Fun I've, to look at, you right, know? Right, right. Um, it has been, it has become and, and is an important signaling tool, I think, for the Federal Reserve to sort of indicate the path of policy. Right. Um, so the, again, the way, the way that we're thinking about this on the team is there has been significant progress. I, we would have thought inflation would have required um, more of a labor market adjustment, if I'm being quite honest, to see a slowing in service prices. But we have seen this fairly immaculate decline in inflation, and we need to recognize it. Um, and again, this is something we wrote about in our Q4 thought leadership paper about the likelihood of a higher potential growth rate in the U.S. If that's the case, um, and we won't, we won't really know for some time, but if that's the case, the labor market can remain tight, inflation can slow, growth and earnings can outperform. It's really an optimistic scenario and is one of the reasons why we're um, overweight U.S. equities in, in our funds okay. right now. I'm going to go directly to that in just, in just one second. What, what to the questioning of those who say, but there's, and I forget how many it is right now, but X number of rate hikes that have been made, but have not yet shown up. And that's still a worry. How do you answer that? Yeah, I mean, that is, I mean, there really are two paths here. Is this a delayed reaction to 525 basis points of tightening in the US that we haven't, that, that we just haven't seen yet? Or, um, is the U.S. just less interest rate sensitive? And are we in the midst of a sort of productivity or potential growth boom? I can make the argument for either one. Um, you know, when I worked at the, at the central bank, at the Bank of Canada, we used to say the lags for monetary policy are long and variable, 12 to 18 months. Yeah. I think that's too long. Do you? Okay. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I mean, that, that's a result from nine, research that was done in the 90s. Before we were checking our credit card and bank statements every morning, sure. right on our on our phones. I think today consumers adjust things much faster than than in the past, um, and I can make the argument that the U.S. is just a much less interest rate sensitive economy after the great financial crisis. I, exactly why? right. Yeah. So you know, 2008 Americans took their medicine, right? Almost 10, 10 million jobs lost, huge amount of deleveraging and, and foreclosures, and they didn't relever unlike Canadians. And the other important point is a very different structure to the mortgage market. So, you know, when I lived in just south of Boston, I had a 30-year fixed rate mortgage that was at 2% for 30 years. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. How did you negotiate that one? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I was interest rate insensitive unless I changed my mortgage, right? right? And a huge portion of American homeowners 
refinance their mortgage pre-COVID. Um, and so that just makes that entire uh, economy Cohort, less, yeah. less interest rate sensitive, mm -hmm. unlike in Canada. Okay, well, so let's go to the comparison, and it, it speaks ultimately to, to the positioning that we'll discuss as well. So the comparison between the U.S. that did all of that deleveraging, sort of a 10-year cycle after the great financial crisis, compared to Canada. Yeah, so in Canada, it's a very different story, right? So we have been, uh, you know, we are quite cautious and have been quite cautious for some time on the sustainability of the macroeconomy in Canada. And it's really because, in one word, debt. Right? And so it's exceptionally high rates of household debt intersecting borrowing rates that are 475 basis points higher than they were pre-COVID. Right? And so if I rewind to 08, in 08, uh, we know what happened in the U.S., major systemic financial crisis, one in a hundred year type of event. Um, and Canada really sailed through the financial crisis. Sort of right? skirted that. Right. So mm -hmm. sort of first or second best in the G7, depending on how you measure it. But rates moved lower globally, including in Canada. And rates moved lower in Canada. And then Canadians did what low rates incentivize you to do. They bought houses, cottages, condos, sea-doos, ski-doos, quads for my, for my viewers in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, Four-wheel things. Um, more stable. More stable. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, servicing that type of debt is fine unless you get the largest inflation shock in 40 years resulting in 475 basis points of tightening which is exactly what we got. And so rates have pushed much higher and servicing that debt is set to become much more challenging. The, the housing market in Canada was on fire in 2019, 20 and 21. Most of us have five-year terms on our mortgages. If you add five years to 2019, 20 and 21, you get 2024, 25 and 26. 2024 is in like two weeks, three weeks, yeah. right? And so our expectation is a pullback in discretionary consumer spending to make sure that principal mortgage gets paid. And I think you've discussed this before, David Wolf, is the, the valve to sort of express that often will be the loony. So it'll be the Canadian dollar. And again, that comparison to the US dollar. So bring this into the positioning. We'll tease it out a little bit, but bring this into the positioning that you've got right now that's sort of a relative US-Canadian discussion. And then also we'll get into the 60-40, but. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the first and foremost thing to talk about is our underweight to Canada. Right? Okay. So we're underweight Canadian equities. Um, and we're overweight U.S. equities. We do believe that the U.S. in relative terms will outperform Canada. But most importantly, we do believe that Canada will lag, right, because of these really serious macroeconomic headwinds. Uh, so we're underweight Canadian equities. And then, as you mentioned, Pamela, we're underweight the Canadian dollar, right? And we're underweight the Canadian dollar for a couple of reasons. Um, this is something we've discussed in a, in a lot of our research papers, and and we'll really get into in our forthcoming research paper next year. Good. So um, we're getting a little bit of a taster of what is for Q1. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So in Q1, we're going to answer all of those top questions that that advisors have um, in great length. I think probably the longest length we've ever done. But um, again, every single one of those questions is really important and we wanted to address them. But that underweight to the Canadian dollar is important yeah. because number one, it reflects um, that sensitivity to to the Canadian uh, economy that we think will happen. So again, the first valve to get released is that depreciation. And the other reason is an overweight to the US dollar has been, and an underweight to the Canadian dollar has really been a reliable diversifier for us to really buffer the downside in, in our funds. So we've used it as a shock absorber. Okay, fascinating. So one of the questions, you have not shared all of your report, obviously with anybody because you're still writing it, but, um, but one thing you're going to tackle is the idea of a balanced fund 
versus a GIC. Take us through the reasoning and how you explain this. Yeah, this is probably the question I got asked most this year on the road, right? So I've done. Was it really? Yeah. I think so. I mean, so I've done hundreds of meetings this year and met with thousands of advisors and I think lived in Air Canada lounges. Uh, How many trips have you done this year? I I think I hit 80, um, 80 80 flights, but um, almost 80 flights. But that GIC versus the balance fund question has been top of mind. Uh, Sometimes it's phrased as, in 2022, it was phrased as, is 60-40 dead, right? Is the 60-40 dead? I think of those as sort of the same question. That is, that is a question that we do get to in our, in our forthcoming paper. And the way I think about that is, in 2022, it looked like 60-40 was dead, right? So again, 2022, I don't need to remind any of the viewers that, you know, from a stock and bond perspective, it was sort of down and they more down. Correlated. Right. And period. in 2023, there was a return to a more normal uh, 60-40 um, environment. Uh, but it's unsurprising that investors really flocked to GICs because they were getting rates of returns that they weren't getting in 20 or 30 years. Now, the way we think about that in the context of our fund is if you really look at risk-adjusted return over a medium or long, longer-term period, um, we we believe the risk-return trade-off is far more beneficial in a balanced fund. What's a longer period? Longer no, than a year. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. So in in a longer-term horizon, you will see, and we have this great chart that will come out next year, showing the risk and return benefits of being in a balanced fund, a well-diversified balanced fund. That's the first point. The second point is we actually have access to asset classes in our funds that are very similar to GIC, right? So that short-term cash allocation in our funds uh, is our version of a GIC. And there are times when we'll be overweight that as well for that yield pickup. Um, But again, for the medium to long-run investor, uh, the risk and return trade-off in a balanced fund is, we believe, far superior to to that locked-in, you know, uh, GIC return. Yeah. Fascinating. It's great to sort of iron that out here as we go into the next year. Um, I, I'm going to put a couple of questions to you, Alon. So would a cut precipitate um, overly exuberant market activity, which could defeat the Fed's purpose, rolling back to you know what's on the table for the Fed right now? Um, yeah. So you know the most honest answer to what will happen after a cut is I don't know, right? Yeah. And so and nor do a lot of the talking heads that we sometimes see on TV. Something should fly, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, Something. yeah. So I think, again, the way I think about this is where are rates now versus where, where they need to be, right? And so if, if the Federal Reserve believes that, you know, they've seen meaningful progress on inflation, and this again, this is not one or two months, this is six, seven, eight, nine months of progress on inflation, then rates perhaps don't need to be as restrictive as they are. Now, I would, I would, I would mention that markets are pricing in six cuts between now and the end of next year. That's a lot of cuts. That's a lot of cuts. That's a lot is of cuts. Is that optimistic? I mean, to me, that is, that seems like the upper bound again. Or it's a recession, which is not at all optimistic. It, exactly. It's being cut for that reason. It, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's important. We don't often know the motivation for the forecast and cuts. Um, but I, I, again, we are coming to this view that perhaps policies in the U.S. doesn't need to be as restrictive as it is because of some of the progress. Um, and the increasing likelihood that they've achieved a soft landing. Again, very different story in Canada. Um, very different story in Canada where we really have not seen as much progress on inflation um, than, than, than in the U.S. Um, but uh, again, we don't, believe, we don't believe the bank is going to cut imminently. The Bank of Canada is going to cut imminently. They're probably not moving much more restrictive. Yeah. But 
in our view, and again, this is this is mentioned in in communication uh, from the Bank of Canada governor himself. Rates need to remain restrictive until we see more progress on inflation. That's the Canadian story. Yeah. We'll see if if that story evolves in the U.S. But at present, um, you know, even Chair Powell has said as early as last week or ten days ago, rather about two weeks ago, that they need to see more progress. We'll see if what we saw today was that was that progress. Was in fact that progress. I'll just put a couple more to you, and then we're going to swing back to some other ideas. So. Uh, your thoughts on the five-year bond yield and what it could mean for mortgage renewals in 2024. Uh, let's go with a Canadian thought on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this is most, yeah, this is most relevant for, for Canada. Yeah. Um, again, in Canada, unlike the U.S., we have a very different structure to the mortgage market, right? right? So most of us have five-year terms, housing market on fire, 19, 20, and 21, which means 24, 25, and 26 really are going to be those those pain points. The way we think about this in the context of our funds and what it means for positioning is really um, what it will do to, to discretionary consumer spending. So this takes a few seconds to outline, but I think it's an Let's important do. one. Canadians have full recourse mortgages, right? We don't have normally that 2008 Las Vegas effect of giving back the keys. Um, but what historically Canadians have done is they have cut discretionary spending to the bone to make sure that that principal mortgage payment gets made, right? right? And so the way I think this could play out over the next, say, 12 or 18 months is uh, the renewals come up. And if you add to it a stress test, that's a meaningfully higher uh, bar or hurdle rate that for any for any homeowner. Um, and what a lot of homeowners, I think, will do is they will say, we have to cut discretionary consumer spending really significantly, right? So we're swapping out of the restaurants into cooking at home. The kids go to one week fewer summer camp. Right. So you're making these discretionary consumer spending changes to make sure that principal mortgage gets paid. Consumer spending is two thirds of Canadian GDP. Right. So if growth this year in Canada was a flat line. Right. So the Canadian economy has not grown at all. Mm -hmm. Right. At all this year. um, A little bit of a pullback in discretionary consumer spending could spell a decline in growth or a recession. Right. And it's not impossible that next year the statistical agency says, oh, by the way, last year you were in a recession. When they revise the data, so again, to us, we we are we are very focused with our research teams on thinking about what this wave of renewals will mean when it when it spills out into the broader economy, and and this really explains the difference, the key difference in our positioning: underweight Canada and overweight the U.S. Okay, fascinating to to get your thoughts on that. So, um, so this question: Why is the central bank maintaining a hawkish tone? When, as you say, there are serious headwinds for the Canadian economy and consumer. I mean, is it the inflation story? Why, why are they remaining like yeah, that? Yeah, it is. I mean, so the Bank of Canada has one job. And it's to keep inflation right. between 1% and 3%. Now, they're not going to just blindly remain, um, you know, uh, restrictive in if there's blood in the streets, right? I if mean, the economy is just tanking. If the economy yeah. is tanking, right? Yeah. So they will. there will come a point at which they're trading off uh, very, very weak growth, r- sharp rises in unemployment and damage to the real economy, um, you know, against hitting and uh, on a sustained basis, the inflation goal. There will that trade off will come. Um, and it's a very difficult trade off to make. At present, it doesn't look like they're trading off at all against anything but um, hitting their inflation target on a sustained basis. Right. So, again, Pre-COVID, we had this phrase, don't fight the Fed, right? Don't fight the Bank of Canada. We should be thinking about that that same phrase today. 
The Bank of Canada has one job, inflation between one and three percent. We're not there yet. And so uh, a restrictive policy stance is appropriate until we get more evidence that we are heading to that sort of two percent um, target on a sustained basis. So let's say that uh, the Bank of Canada and, and, you know, the numbers justify it, that inflation sticks around a little longer. The Bank of Canada is grappling with that as an investor, as someone who's managing a balanced approach. Where does the energy come into this? Where does energy come in to offset the inflationary story? Does it come in? Um, what are your thoughts on energy for the year to come? Yeah. So again, this is another, um, this is a tricky one. This is a contentious question at times. And I always like to preface it with, I like to remain statistical. I'm not political, right? So statistical, not political. Yeah. Um, and the reason I pre I say that is energy used to be a really significant tailwind for Canada. Um, yes. right. So it used to be high energy prices. They lift all the boats in certainly in the West, but they lift all the boats in the East as well. And I don't know how many boats are in Alberta, but you know what yeah. I mean? Like they, oh, yeah. they lift all the boats. But because of the investment environment in terms of bringing new energy supply on in Canada, that tailwind has diminished meaningfully, right? So energy capex has fallen by 50% in the last 10 years, right? It's a very, very steep decline. It's been a drag on growth for 10 years. And, you know, if you speak to the, the folks that run our natural resources fund, they will tell you that in Canada, the environment to bring new energy supply on is particularly challenged. I don't. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. No, no one's. No one's creating new <clears throat> new mines and and new. It, exactly right. So it, yeah. it's harder to put straws in the ground. Exactly. Again, I'm not an oil engineer. That's yeah. in my head how it comes out. But, um, but uh, <laughs> it strikes. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So, yeah. but uh, but what it means for us in terms of uh, a potential, you know, is energy a get out of jail card, a get out of jail free card? Um, less so than in the past because. Okay because we don't really have as much of a tailwind from elevated energy prices leading to increased capex leading to increased gross domestic income and gross domestic product um so this is why again uh canada is particularly at risk i mean a couple other points on that um again in 2008 i was at the central bank uh canada skated through as the finance working there yes i was working yeah. there yeah. um under carney under governor carney we we made it through the financial crisis quite well and that was was because we had you know five well capitalized banks and we didn't have some of those dodgy mortgages. We also had China growing at fifteen percent, buying all of the commodities we could export. Right? We shouldn't forget about that really significant tailwind. The last point to make on on commodities and energy is this is another reason why um, you know the Canadian dollar, the value of the Canadian dollar, the bilateral exchange rate has sort of delinked or decoupled from oil prices. Right. So if you look at that relationship over time and look for the great chart we'll have in Q1 in that Q1 paper, the Canadian dollar and oil prices are they kind of move in lockstep for decades. And that relationship has fully broken down, I would say, over the last two years, two and a half years, um, where we can have oil prices at one hundred dollars or ninety dollars and the Canadian dollar is still sitting in the low center. I'm going to pick up on one thing you said there and then we'll, and then we'll close out with sort of the equity story bonds and 6040. Um you mentioned China through that period growing at, you know, 5%. It's a huge clip, actually. It's higher than that. But who in the world, again, for this sort of relative story of where to put your money around the world, is growing at the fastest rate? Uh, so there are sort of two questions there. Um, on a long-term, on a long-term perspective, if we look at, you know, our long-term growth assumptions, 
which feed into long-term earnings assumptions, uh, what we call capital market assumptions on the research side. There are no regions more optimistic than emerging markets, right? Emerging markets have generally younger populations and the really that potential for productivity growth that's explosive. Now, cyclically, they've been challenged, as we all know. Sure. And so on a more cyclical short-term basis, I think what we're observing in the U.S. is remarkably positive. Right? So this is something that we outlined in our Q4 paper entitled Potential. Um, if the stall speed or the potential growth rate of the U.S. economy is higher than what we think it could be, it's a remarkably positive story. Right? Like how Again, high are we talking? Right? What if it's in the fours or fives and instead of the twos, which we, we've thought of as potential growth for the last 20 years? That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I mean, it means uh, we could have elevated rates of growth, strong earnings, low, a very tight labor market, um, uh, slowing in inflation. I mean, it's a really a, a wonderful story that we, again, that we outlined in that Q4 paper. And the last thing to mention there is this has happened in the past, right? So in the mid to late 90s, the recession models we were using, which aren't that different from the ones we're using today, were all flashing red. But what we couldn't recognize and we didn't recognize in the mid to late 90s was that the advent of the internet had meaningfully boosted productivity growth and potential growth. And for that reason, we never got that recession in the mid to late 90s. And we had a pretty great environment for, um, for equities. So I won't pin you on the AI thing, but let's just move to the U.S. equities versus other equities that, that at the moment you are sort of 60-40. This is, this is where you are. You mentioned this in the Q4 paper as well. Yeah, so right now that's 60-40. Um, uh, as of the last uh, positioning that we can discuss, was yeah. very very close to neutral. Yeah. Uh, we've leaned a little bit more into equities. Uh, if you know, if I have to evolve that positioning, yeah. Um, again, we are there are spots where we're where we are optimistic and where we're being more defensive. Um, you know, we're more optimistic on the U.S. We have slight overweights to Europe, uh, emerging markets, as well as commodity producers. Commodity producers uh, around the world, or uh, well, particularly so in. Those are those are particular positions that are relevant to how we view inflation. Okay. Right. So that's oil and gold. Um, that's with a view towards that still stubbornly elevated inflation. And then the defensiveness really is uh, in Canada. Right. So, again, this is really a Canada versus the rest of the world type of story in terms of in terms of positioning. But um, that's the positioning as of uh, as of right now. Um, and on the fixed income, we'll just close with this side. Just just give us a sort of thirty second tour, if you don't mind. Sure. So on the fi on the fixed income side, again, we're still underweight investment grade. Uh, value has returned. Uh, you know, a considerable amount of value has returned, but we still think the better place for us to be enhancing the income side of the fund are the credit and the spread sectors. Right. So you have the high yield, leverage loans, floating rate, these kinds of sectors. Uh, a little bit of inflation protection as well on the fixed income side, um, and then again, meaningfully underweight the Canadian dollar to build in that defensiveness. It's been wonderful to have you here, Elon, to answer all of these questions. We hope that you find rest over the holidays and we'll be, I think we're speaking with you pretty early on into uh, January to hear actually that report. I look forward to it. Do you have some editing to do? I do, it's yeah. a big one. It's a big paper. <laughs> we look forward to, to catching up with you then. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. 
while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.